We are in a series called Uniquely Luke, and these are passages that are only found in the book of Luke, parables, stories, only in Luke's gospel, and here we go, Luke chapter 16. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called out to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, this is one of those messages. I pray that we would not shirk from it. I pray that we would face the text and let the Holy Spirit speak to us. Father, I pray for the right fear of the Lord today as we gaze at your justice and severity. I pray that deception would be washed off of us, and I pray that all hardness of heart would be softened in this place. Lord, you love everyone here. You died for everyone here. Help us to respond in the right way. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The title of the message is The Place of no return. Point one, the main point of the parable. To get to the main point of a parable, you have to see who it's addressed to. Here's, here are the verses right before, Luke 16, 14 and 15. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So the rich man, he's, he's fashioned after the Pharisees. We know the rich man is Jewish because all of his five brothers are Jewish. He's like, Jesus, the, the, Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets. So these are Jewish people. They are practicing Jews. But something has happened. They have become deceived in their religion. They've got this nice little box around the synagogue time and their songs and their verses and their Jewish practices. 
and how they're actually living their life. Their life is, the law is all about the poor and caring for the poor and having a heart for the poor and loving your neighbor. And, but they have made a little box around the religion and, and they have incubated themselves. They've got a bubble around themselves so that, that they, they just walk past Lazarus every day. Here's Lazarus right at his gate, starving in darkness, and he just has resolved that it's okay. It's just okay. It's okay that I live this way and that he's like that and that I do nothing and that I feel nothing for him. That, that this, this is okay. He has justified it. And so Jesus is speaking, and, and just so you know, Jesus loves the Pharisees. Jesus loves people that are in deception. That's why he speaks so frankly. He wants to break them free from it. He says, listen, just because you can justify yourself and just because you can get people to justify you and people to say, yeah, you're okay, yeah, you're okay, yeah, that's fine. He said, it, that means nothing. The only thing that matters is what God thinks and you can be an abomination in God's sight and have people say, oh, you're just fine, you're just fine. What has happened to the rich man? He's become hardened in his heart. Luke chapter seven, verse 30. But the Pharisees, and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Let's be clear, this is not about money. This is not about, you've got a lot of money, so that's evil. No, that's not what this is about. Abraham himself was very wealthy. Abraham is there because he believed God and he was counted as righteous and everybody that joins him, Lazarus is there not because he was poor but because he believed God the way Abraham did. And everybody that believes is there. It's not about, it's not about the, the, the money. It's about this hardness of heart. John the Baptist was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. He was all about the law, Moses and the law. He was a voice to this generation. And God was speaking to the Pharisees through John the Baptist. He was speaking to that whole generation of Jews through John the Baptist. And when God speaks, it's very important that we humble ourselves. Even if we don't like the way it came or the way it looked or, or we, we need, every time you hear God speak, you have a choice of being soft and responsive or hardening your heart. Hebrews 3 and 4, three times says the same thing. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And so they rejected John. And by rejecting John, they rejected God's purpose for themselves. And it's as if they have become Hard now. Now they can't hear anymore. They can't, they can't respond anymore because their hearts have become hard. So the, the rich man says, send Lazarus back. Send him back and, and, and talk to them. And he's like, he, they've got Moses in the law. And he says, no, 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 no. They need something more. They need something more. If somebody's raised from the dead, definitely they will respond. And Abraham says, no, no. If they're not listening to Moses and the law, if they're not responding to what they have now, they're not gonna respond no matter how loud God seems to speak. This is, this is how spiritual life works and it's extremely dangerous. People usually don't say no to God. You know what they say? Just not now. <laughs> not now. 
God, thank you. Yes, I feel you. Yes, I want to respond to you. And I want and I will someday. But right now, I'm having too much fun. Right now, I'm going to do my own thing. Right now, I need to stay in this sin. Right now, I need to play around with this or play around with that. But yeah, I've got a plan to come back. And people don't realize you are playing with your heart. When your heart becomes hard, it gets harder and harder to hear God. It gets harder and harder to respond to God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So God is speaking through the rich man to all of us today. You are going to be conscious after you die. You are going to remember what you've done. You're going to remember the people that you left behind. So one of the most famous stories in all of history was based on the rich man and Lazarus. It's called The Christmas Carol. Charles Dickens wrote it in 1843. There's been 135 video adaptations, just video, of The Christmas Carol. The rich man is a guy named Jacob Marley, who is Ebenezer Scrooge's business partner. And he is allowed to come back from the dead and speak to Scrooge. Scrooge is like the five brothers. And he comes back and he comes back from the dead to warn him, to warn him what's going on. And, and Scrooge doesn't want to hear it and doesn't want to listen to it. And you're just a piece of undigested Jesus. He says, you worldly man, listen to me. I have a message for you. I am bearing a chain that cannot be removed. I'm in the place of no return. But your chain is longer than mine. That chain, you forged it yourself. By every decision, every selfishness, every hardness, you have forged this chain yourself. But for you, while you're alive, there's still a chance to repent. The fact that the Gospels are on Dickens' mind um, wh- where do I get that from? It comes from Tiny Tim, what Bob Cratchit says about Tiny Tim. Here's, here's what he says. Somehow Tim gets thoughtful, sitting by himself so much, and thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me, coming home, that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple, and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Tiny Tim is the one that is right in front of Scrooge every day, just like Lazarus is, and will die if there is not intervention. And he is allowed to have these experiences where he repents, and so Tiny Tim ends up living because of his repentance, and, and, and he opens up his heart. But it's all about hardening your heart against people. Scrooge says to Jacob Marley, the dead business partner that comes back, Joseph, you are a good man. You are a man of business. And Jacob Marley screeches, mankind was my business. The rich man is still speaking to all of us today. Don't harden your heart. Point two, the Bible reveals truths about Hades that can be learned no other way. 
I'm gonna say a number of things about Hades that you can learn if you will accept Jesus' authority and the authority of scripture to tell you what's true. Scientifically, none of this can be proven, but there's lots of stuff that we can learn about Hades by just accepting the Bible's testimony about Hades. Hades is a place, it is a holding tank. In the Old Testament, it had both the righteous and the wicked. It was one place, it's, it's the same as Sheol of the Old Testament. Sheol is Hebrew, Hades is Greek, same place. It is the place that the dead went. All of the souls of the dead. Death held bodies while Hades holds souls. And so this is the Old Testament, so everybody's there. The, 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 there there's, this, there's this divide between it, the, the righteous are on this side, the, the wicked, the unrighteous are on this side. One is a place of torment and one is a place of simply waiting. Actually, they're both places of waiting. Hades is a temporary place. The righteous, we're waiting for Messiah. Did you know that when Jesus died, he went to Hades? Did you know that Hades is in the center of the earth? What? Matthew, Matthew 12, 40. As Noah spent three days in the middle of the well, the son of man will spend three days in the middle of the earth. He did not suffer in Hades. He suffered on the cross. Everything he did, he suffered on the cross for you and me. But then he went to Hades. He was in Hades. Where? With the righteous. In Abraham's bosom, with all of the righteous. Death held his body for three days. Hades held his soul for three days. Acts 2, 31. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. He was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption, or did death hold him? Revelation 1, 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. He stripped Satan and all the principalities and powers of their authority through what he did on the cross. This is Colossians 2.15. He got the authority over Hades and death back. He unlocked Hades, and this is what it says in Ephesians 4, 8 and 9. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. Jesus, Sheol and Hades are always down. They're always, when Samuel comes up, he comes up out of Sheol. It's always in the middle of the earth. Jesus is there for three days. And then he unlocks the righteous side of Hades. Those are the captives that he leads on high. Right now, everybody that, that was in Christ, everybody that was declared righteous by faith like Abraham was, is no longer down there. They're up there. They're in heaven. That when you die today, in fact, 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The, the righteous side of Hades has already been emptied out, guys. Praise God. They were waiting for Messiah. Messiah has come. Now, when you die, you go directly to heaven or your soul does. Your soul does. Your body is still held by death. 
But at the second coming of Jesus, everybody that has died in Christ will be raised. Everybody that's alive in him will be transformed in the twinkle of an eye. The mortal will put on immortality. The perishable will put on uh, an imperishable new body. And in that day, death will be defeated. It's, it's already defeated. Jesus is the first fruits. Jesus is resurrected. The promise that you'll be resurrected bodily is that Jesus was resurrected. That comes, that comes at his second coming. The unrighteous are in Hades still. When people die today, they go to Hades, but Hades, Hades is a waiting room. They are waiting as well. What are they waiting for? Second Peter says that he keeps the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Day of judgment has not come yet. It's in the future. Everybody will have that day of judgment. But right now, the unbelieving go to a place called Hades. Hades and death themselves will one day be destroyed in the lake of fire. The lake of fire is a synonym for hell. We'll see that in a second. People make Hades and hell the same thing. They are, they are different. They're different, two different places. I'm going to read Revelation 20, 13 and 14. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Death and Hades have a purpose that they're serving now, and then they themselves will be destroyed. Jesus says this in Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Not hell, Hades. Why is it the, the gates of Hades? Well, gates, the, the city gates in that day were where the leadership gathered. That's where you had your board meetings. That's where you had your city meetings. The gates was where you made strategies. It's how you led the city. And so he's talking about the strategies of Hades. So what are the strategies of Hades? It's very interesting because it's very simple. Satan is the God of this world. And what he wants to do is overwhelm you and overwhelm your life to keep you in this world. Cares and the worries of this world, the riches and the pleasures of this life. World, 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 world. And make the things of God become distant and make-believe. And this world is what's real. And this world is what, what, what is urgent. When you die, if you go to heaven, angels will take you, just like they took Lazarus. But if you, if you don't belong to Christ, demons will take you, and here's where they'll take you. You'll never leave this earth. You'll go right down to Hades, and you will wait with all those that are waiting for final judgment. So enemy strategy, what's his what's strategy? Worldliness. Get you filled with this world, this world, this world. Everything's about this world. The urgent things of this world. And trying to get you to back away from God, back away from church, back away from heaven, back away from spiritual life in Christ. That is the plan, the strategy of hell. Thank God Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and that's not going to work. Hallelujah. All right, last point, the place of no return. First, Jesus told us there's a heaven and there is a hell. John 14, 2, I love this. In verse one, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. There are many rooms in my father's house. 
There is a heaven. And then he says this in verse two. If it wasn't so, I would have told you. Jesus is very different than human beings. Human beings will often tell you what you want to hear just to make you feel better, just to appease you. You know, you want to believe something? Well, you, you go ahead and believe it, you poor little thing. Jesus said, I'm not, I'm not about appeasing anybody. I, if I'm telling you about heaven, it's because there is one. I, he is the truth. He can't lie. There is a heaven. <laughs> Don't let your hearts be troubled. There is a heaven. God has made heaven. And there is a heaven, rejoice, that will last forever. It's the beauty of heaven is beyond anything that we can express. But that same Jesus said, there is, a, there is a hell. In fact, he spoke more about hell than he did heaven. Not to threaten his enemies, to warn his friends. There's a hell, don't end up there. Right now in America, 73% of Americans believe in heaven. 62% believe in hell. Now, here's what's really important. Christianity is not more true because you believe it. And it's not less true if you don't follow it. It's just the truth. It, it, there is a heaven and there is a hell. Whether you believe it or not, it doesn't make any difference at all whether you believe it or not. It, it's like the sun is behind the clouds and you decide you don't believe there is a sun. Does it make any difference that you have come to that decision? No. <laughs> you, I mean, you're, you're deceived. There is a sun. It's just not shining right now so that you could see it. There is a heaven and there's a hell. Why am I so adamant about this? Because the first step to ending up in hell is to not believing in hell. There is a hell. Jesus warned us. The one who died and rose again from the dead, who has all authority, said there is a hell. Hell is a place of no return. So I've already said that it's a synonym for the lake of fire. Where do I get that? Matthew 18, 8 and 9. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Now, when he uses hell that second time, he uses the word Gehenna. Gehenna was a real place that all of them knew about. It was outside the city. It was their, basically their garbage dump. And it was in the Valley of Hanam, and it burned garbage 24-7, 365 days. It was always on fire. It was a continual burning. And he says, this is something you know. The eternal fire is something you don't know, but here's something you know that will describe it. It is the lake of fire, and it burns forever. And when you end up there, it is a place of no return. So it turns out in the fourth century, two different positions were developed on the human soul. One position held by um, Tertullian and later Augustine, very strong leaders, held that the soul was eternal, that being in the image of God meant that the soul was eternal. The second position that also started about that same time was by a guy named Arnobius, and he believed 
that the soul was created not with eternal life, but for eternal life. So in one, if the, if the soul is eternal, and, and, and people have done that, this has become the more traditional view of the church, that if the soul is eternal, then hell's torment, conscious torment, has to be forever and ever because you have an eternal soul. And so that has been the mainstream traditional view of the church, but there's always been a minority view right from the beginning that hell's fire, although the fire itself is eternal and the punishment is irreversible, that it eventually annihilates those in its flame. So I wrote a book called Raising Hell, A Closer Look at the Darkest Doctrine of the Church. And it, if, you want, if you want to learn more about this, it's out there. We got it on the table. There's, first, church, first service took most of them, but uh, it's $5 if you get it out there. But I've got a, a secret for you. If you get it on Kindle, it's 99 cents. It's called Raising Hell. You just type that in Amazon, it'll come right up. So if you want, if you want to learn more about this, what, are, what is the thesis of the book? So it turns out that when Tertullian and later Augustine established that the soul is eternal, they were not quoting the Bible. They were quoting Plato. This was a Greek philosophy idea that the soul is eternal. They were trying to make the case that the soul lives past the body, which is absolutely biblical, but, but then they made the soul eternal. So once the soul is eternal, the punishment has to last forever and ever. So a guy named Origen in the fourth century, that doesn't work. That doesn't work with the love of God. That doesn't work with the sacrifice of Christ. And so he made a different doctrine called universalism. And he said, hell's fires are remedial. That yes, you'll get justice in hell, but then everybody will come back. Jesus died for everybody, so everybody will come back. And in the end, everybody will be back in heaven. And back then, it was determined this is heresy that you can't believe the Bible and believe universalism. The, the Bible says a foundational doctrine of the church is eternal judgment, eternal punishment. We are warned again and again. This, you get one chance and it is going to last forever. The, the punishment will last forever. And so it, it was condemned as heresy in the fifth century. It was condemned in the American evangelical again in 1988, condemned again by the British evangelicals in 1995. Universalism, or the idea that everybody's going to come back and be saved anyway, is absolutely false and it's unbiblical. But there's been a minority position since the early church that, that I believe is, is the right position. So I don't believe we were created with eternal life. I don't believe human souls are created with eternal life. I believe they were created for eternal life. That mankind in itself is like the grass that withers and the flower that fades. So well, where's our value then if we're not eternal? Where's our value? Here's our value. Our value is, is that God has set his love on us. Our value is this, that he has died for us on the cross. Our value is this, he wants to give us temporal rebellious beings his eternal life. It says, that, it says in 2 Timothy 6 that God alone is immortal, but he wants to share his immortality with us, that we would have his very eternal 
life. No, Pastor Tom, why do you, why, you know, the traditional view is, is different. How do, you, how do you believe? I just don't think this was ever in God's heart. So let's go back to the garden, okay? Remember the garden of Eden? There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there is the tree of life. So even though Adam and Eve are in the image of God, neither of them has what the tree of life would give them. And so they eat from the wrong tree, and here's what God's response is. He puts, this is Genesis 3.22. He puts two angels at the, at the garden so they can't get back in, and here's why. So that they do not eat from the tree of life and live forever. Guys, it's the, it's the tree of eternal life. And God says, it's never been my plan that human beings would live apart from me forever and ever. Don't let them eat from that tree. So Pastor Tom, where, where is this in the New Testament? Oh my. If you get rid of the presupposition that we're eternal, it's all over the New Testament. John 3.16, the golden text. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would what? Not perish, but have eternal life. Matthew 10, 28, don't fear him who can kill the body, but fear him after the body is dead will destroy both body and soul in hell. Hebrews 10, 28, that the fire of hell will consume the enemies of God. Matthew chapter three, that Messiah will bring the wheat into the barn, talking about those that are saved, and the chaff will be burned up with unquenchable fire. The fire itself burns forever. It's a forever warning. But that which is in it is going to be burned up in that fire. And then finally, Revelation 20, 15, the lake of fire is called the second death. But this time it won't just be dying, the body dying. It will be the soul dying as well. So there, there it is. It's, it's, it's all over the New Testament that the end of the wicked is going to be annihilation, not eternal conscious torment. But if you believe the presupposition that we're eternal, which is the majority position in the church, then perish can't mean perish, destroy can't mean destroy, consume can't mean consume, and burned up doesn't mean burned up, and death doesn't mean death, because we're eternal. I don't think we are. So, Pastor Tom, so if we're gonna be annihilated anyway, if we reject Christ, you know, that doesn't sound that horrible. So we have a little punishment for our sins. Oh, mm, let's talk about that punishment for a little, shall we? First, let's talk about why there is conscious torment. Pastor Tom, if God is a good, loving God, why would there ever be a hell? You know, it's interesting, but the human race has cried out for there to be a place of justice. The human race has cried out for this. It's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. Who's gonna hold these people to account? They did this, they did that, they did that, they did that. There's, it will be fair in the end. God is going to defend every sin that happened in the human race and he's going to bring his justice to bear. What is the first thing the parents say? The two-year-old, it's not fair, not fair. Three-year-old, not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. Has any parent ever said this? Whoever said it'd be fair? It's the number one thing we say, this life isn't fair. This life isn't fair, but there is a God of justice, and in the end, it will be fair. So, 
What does that conscious torment look like? What do those sins look like? Well, there's three kinds of sins growingly terrifying to me. The first sins are the sins of commission. These are when you know something's wrong, you do it anyway. Thought, word, or deed. You knew it was wrong, and you did it anyway. You sin, a sin of commission. That's, that's as far as most people think about sin. It's like, I shouldn't do that, but I did it. That's a sin. Okay, secondly, there's sins of omission. That's when there's something you should do that you don't do. There's the right thing that you know you should do that you don't do. In fact, Luke 16 is about a sin of omission. Lazarus is there. He doesn't murder Lazarus. He doesn't steal from Lazarus. He just doesn't help Lazarus. These are the sins of omission. Jesus said, whatever you didn't do for the least of these, you didn't do for me. I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was homeless, you didn't shelter me. I was in prison, you didn't come and visit me. Uh, Whatever you did, didn't do for the least of these, you didn't do for me. So these are growingly terrifying to me. Oh my, mankind was supposed to be my business. How many people have I missed? How many lonely people that I could have helped? How many, the needs are all around us and I'm responsible for it and God wants me to be involved and not live in a bubble and, and terrifying. If, I, if I'm responsible for everything that I could have done that I didn't do, that's terrifying. But there is a third group of sins that's way more terrifying than either the sins of commission or the sins of omission. And that's the sins of influence. That my hardness of heart affects everybody. What I did, and if you can live this way, then I can live that way. And, and he's a leader, and he did this, and so I can do that. And uh, he neg- she neglects church, so I'll neglect church. And, and then their kids neglect church, and then their kids neglect. And you've got this influence, like ripples going out of sinfulness and hardness and callousness. Jesus said it this way, if you make one of these little ones stumble, woe to you. It'd be better for you to have a a millstone hung around your neck and you thrown into the lake because their angels appear before the Father. God is keeping track of everybody's sins. It's terrifying, absolutely terrifying. So for all of your sins against humanity, you, you will be consciously tormented. If you end up paying for your own sins, you will be consciously tormented. And then after that, because of your sin of rejecting God's love and rejecting Christ, you will be annihilated. You will perish. You will cease to have an existence. God, I don't want you. I resent that I was ever created. Well, okay. You won't be. You'll be uncreated. You will get just what you wanted. You want to know God, you're going to have no God irreversible. You lose all existence forever. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So this describes first what is called in the Bible the second resurrection. The first resurrection, it says in Revelation 26, blessed are all who are part of the first resurrection. The first resurrection is the resurrection of the righteous. When Jesus comes back, the imperishable first, get, the perishable get their imperishable bodies, the mortals get their immortal bodies. This is the first resurrection. We get these bodies that are going to last forever and we will be Death will have no sting in that time. This is, described here, is the second resurrection. Death will give up all of its bodies, and all of the unbelieving wicked dead will receive back their bodies. Hades will give its souls, and people will be reunited. And then it says, it's the great right throne. Jesus is the judge of the human race. It says the books were opened. And then it says another book was opened. So there are two, there's books. These are the books. There's one for each human being that covers all of your life. And there's another book called the book of life. So here's God's justice for human beings. He came from heaven, took on flesh, and lived a perfect life among us. He upheld the law perfectly. He only had an influence for good. He was the perfect human being, also God in the flesh. And when he went to the cross, God punished all of your sins. (laughs) All of your sins of commission, all of your sins of omission, all of your sins of influence, every sin that the human race could ever commit was put on Jesus. His blood washes away all sin. He took it all on himself. Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's another way, let this cup pass for me, but not my will. Your will be done. Is there another way to save the human race? Is there another way to forgive sin? There's no other way, guys. God can't arbitrarily forgive you. Well, God loves me. He'll forgive me. No, that's a wrong equation. God so loves you that he came down here, appeared, and became a sacrifice and died in your place. He can only forgive sins justly. He forgives sins because he died for those sins. And so any sin can be forgiven in Christ. This is why Jesus came. He came to give us eternal life. He came so that we would live forever with God, so that we would share his life, that we would become one with God for all eternity. This is what God wants for the human race. But if you say no to him, then you're gonna end up paying for your own sins. That's why there's, the book will come out and it's got all of your sins in it. Everything that you did. Well, so then why do they bring the book of life out? Why is the book of life? Here's what I believe. The Bible says in Revelation 3.5 that if we overcome in Christ, our names will not be erased from the book of life. So here's what I believe. I believe the blood of Jesus made a place for everybody to be in the book of life. Every human being, he died for everybody. So literally, your name has to be erased. You have to say, nope, don't want it. Don't want the love of God. Don't want the salvation of God. I'm gonna take my, my chances. 
And so, why is the book of life open? Maybe first, so that you can see you, where your name was. Here's where you should have been. I loved you, I died for you, and you said no. So in 2020, it was March of 2020, literally COVID just started. I'm, I'm on my sabbatical, I'm at a cabin up north, I get a call from Alice, you might have to come home. They're telling everybody, don't go outside, don't touch anybody, don't breathe. It's, you're gonna catch COVID. And, and I'm, like, I'm like, honey, I'm gonna finish my sabbatical. I'll, I'll be back when I'm back. But I was studying revival. And here's what I noticed about revival and awakening is that heaven and hell become very real. They become more real than all the things that are pulling on earth. And I noticed that the first and second great awakenings, they weren't just about gaining heaven. They were about shunning hell. And the, the, it was fiery preaching. It was, it was all, always about heaven and hell. The first great awakening, the sermon that is, is attributed to releasing the first great awakening. It's the most famous, famous sermon in history. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. So I said, God... You know, I know we're not into hellfire anymore, but I said, God, I want, to, I want to experience myself. I want to experience hell. Would you, would you help me and protect me? But I, I want to experience hell. And so I had, in my mind, I cast myself as a backslidden Christian, like I had walked away from God, and I had some moments that were absolutely terrifying. When I got back, if I'm miserable, I'm gonna make you guys miserable. <laughs> so when I get back, I, I had this message prepared that, I, that was called your first day in eternity. And so this is from that message. So I have cast myself, and you would have to cast yourself in this place of somebody that's not saved. Your first day in eternity, here we go. You arrive in Hades, and have a series of thoughts. First is defiance. I shouldn't be here. I'm a good person. I grew up in church. I accepted Christ. This is wrong. The demons mock you and throw you into your prison. Your rage increases as you explain to God why this is unjust. Then the atmosphere changes. No one speaks but your thoughts are silenced by the weight of God's presence. Your choices and their consequences become clear to you. You are now silenced by the justice of you being here. Yes, you did accept Christ, but you walked away from him. He was too narrow, and Christians were too stupid for you. You were smarter and had found many reasons why the Bible wasn't true. You became an evangelist for godlessness and caused many others to stumble in their faith. Then, in a moment, all of the efforts of the Holy Spirit throughout your life were made clear to you. Person after person, dream after dream, discipline after discipline, but you resisted them all. You sinned against the Holy Spirit's continual efforts to alert and warn you. And finally... He took no as your final answer. You trampled under your feet the blood that was shed for you, and you insulted the spirit of grace 
that had drawn you. You remember a verse. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And you shudder because you experience it. You experience strongly two emotions. One is regret. In your initial regret for misleading so many others, you go to the bars of your prison and scream out, I must go back and warn others. I didn't think this was real. Please let me go back, even if I have to return here. A demon comes before you and mockingly recites a scripture that you knew when you were walking with God. They have the word of God, and if they don't listen to that, they won't believe even if someone is raised from the dead. Then you sink into a much deeper regret because of your own choices. You think of Jesus and his love and your initial devotion to him and all that you could have had with him. You could have gained heaven, but by your own choice, hell is your destiny. And then secondly, hopelessness. You know that this is going to be an eternal, irreversible judgment. From your time being a Christian, you know that Hades is only a waiting room for final judgment. You will receive your body back for that time and know that the lake of fire is awaiting you. If you're not sure that your name is written in the book of life, I want to assure you that Jesus died for you, that his great love paid the price, a price he didn't owe and that you couldn't pay. The Bible says he stands at the door and knocks, and if anyone hears his voice and opens the door and repents, turning from yourself, turning from your own way, turning from your own bubble of whatever it is that you've made around yourself, and say, Jesus, come and save me. Come and be my Savior. Write my book in that book of life. I'm reserving my, I'm confirming my reservation. If you have, if there's any question in your mind about that, just put your hand on your heart right now and pray something like this. Jesus, I repent. I repent of being worldly. I repent of going my own way, doing my own. I, I don't want to insult the spirit of grace anymore. Today, I'm hearing today. God, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. I, I want to be alive forever with you. Jesus, come in and save me. I receive the salvation that you paid for. Thank you for hearing this prayer in Jesus' name. 